One of the biggest questions on the minds of Gonzaga fans is the playing time or lack thereof for redshirt sophomore guard Dominic Harris. Hear my take on why we haven't seen much of him right here. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates through another season of Gonzaga basketball. Today's episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by Sling TV. Don't miss this week's matchup between Gonzaga and Baylor right here on Sling. Sling, the TV you love for a price you'll love. Try it today. All right, folks, we are continuing mailbag monday all the way into wednesday we started mailbag on tuesday this week tons of fantastic listener submitted questions want to say again how much i appreciate getting to interact with you all on a daily or at least weekly basis with the mailbag questions so in this in the spirit of not missing anybody's questions we decided to extend it for the first two segments of today's show we'll get right into it Many, many, many people, including John via Gmail, Mark Falk on Twitter, Wes Jesse on Twitter, and at Sarah Rose on Twitter, all asked about Dominic Harris and his playing time so far this season. So we're going to get right into that. For those of you who listened to Tuesday's episode, one of the themes I talked about a handful of times, I talked about it with Ben Gregg, talked about it a little bit with Malachi Smith as well, is the the quote that Mark Few said after the Xavier game when being asked about Ben Gregg, he was very intentional to say that playing time on this team is a privilege. It is not a right. He was, of course, talking about Ben Gregg and how Ben hadn't seen a lot of playing time in his first couple of years. Of course, his first year, he was basically a high school senior who was just on the roster because his season got canceled. Second year, you know, the Zags had plenty of depth up front with that Chet Holmgren guy, as well as Drew Timmy and, and Anton Watson. But now he has done what is necessary for him to earn playing time. Perhaps that has to do with Ben Gregg, not, or excuse me, with Efton Reed, not necessarily in that playing time, whatever it may be. Ben Gregg has earned playing time and it is a privilege for him to be on the court. To me, that tells me that there is something going on with Dominic Harris that is he has not earned that playing time, whether it is performance wise, whether it is something else. I don't really like to speculate about that unless I have actual information for you. And I'm going to tell you now, unfortunately, I do not have any concrete information. Many people are aware of the kind of, it hasn't really gotten seriously problematic yet, but the kind of concern on Twitter, there's been a lot of conversation. Uh, Dominic Harris's father is on Twitter. He's, you know, expressed concern about Dom's playing time. I guess we'll put it that way. And and there's been some kind of infighting and a little bit of, of kind of, you know, Twitter drama. That's what Twitter kind of <laughs> tends to stir up uh, is drama a lot of the time. So it's not entirely unsurprising. It is a bit unfamiliar for Gonzaga fans and Gonzaga in general. They tend to not have any kind of drama around their team, save for obviously some, some significant incident last year with Mark Few and the DUI, which should not be glossed over in any capacity. But with regards to players and being upset about playing time, this isn't something that happens all that often. And to be clear, most of the conversations about frustration regarding Dom's playing time haven't directly come from Dom. Uh, it's, it's often coming from family, from his girlfriend who's on the women's basketball team, from other people expressing kind of discontent uh, about his playing time up to this point. But one thing that, that I've seen a lot is people kind of mention like how much Dom's skill set would help the Zags. And I guess 
where I struggle with that is we know what his skill set is perceived to be. We know what he was good at in high school. We know what, you know, how he was scouted, how he was, you know, what, what he was brought here to do, but we haven't seen him do that yet. And obviously it's not all his fault. The injury that took out his entire sophomore year is, is devastating and frustrating. And I can imagine why that would be difficult to deal with, but I think a lot of times we kind of fall in love with a player's potential and their appeal. And until they do something to prove us wrong, we're just going to assume that they're the best version of the player that they can be. Mark Few, if, if Dominic Harris was outplaying Malachi Smith in practice, if Dominic Harris was clearly a better basketball player than Dom or Hunter or Nolan or anybody like that, Mark Few would play him. Mark Few has been doing this for 22 years. His teams have had an extraordinary amount of success. He's won well over 80% of the basketball games that he has coached. If Dominic Harris had earned the playing time, and again, I don't know if there's anything going on there that is preventing him from actually earning that privilege uh, the way that Few has phrased it, but either he hasn't earned it for some, for some reason, or he's just not as good as the guys who are currently playing. That doesn't necessarily mean he won't get there. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not very, very close between him and Malachi, or that if Malachi continues to struggle against higher level opponents, that perhaps there could be a changing of the guard there, but I'm not willing to to look at Malachi Smith's early season kind of struggles, especially against high-level competition, and what we haven't seen from Dominic Harris and think, hey, that's clearly the better option. When Dom has played this year, he played a few minutes against Texas. He played a little bit uh, in the Portland State game. We haven't seen much of him, and it's hard to draw any any sweeping conclusions, but I don't, I, I haven't seen anything that makes me think he obviously deserves to play over the guys who are currently playing. The only kind of things we have are conversations about how good, how good he was a couple of years ago. We're not seeing him on a day-to-day basis at practice. So I don't know how we can be convinced necessarily that what he would bring to this team right now on the roster is better than the guys who are currently there. We also don't know all of the off the court stuff, but I, I'm a big, I have a lot of faith and trust in Mark View and what that staff does and who they choose to and not to play. And so whatever the reason may be, I'm willing to to trust in it right now. Next question comes from Austin via Gmail. Austin says, Smith had a great game against Portland State, but was rendered irrelevant against Purdue, simply not ready for this caliber of opponent or something else. He's just adjusting. It's, it's the same kind of point I made a lot in Tuesday's show. Most of the time when Gonzaga has played seven games, they have not played them against teams like this. The schedule that they have played through seven games this season is more difficult than any seven-game schedule to open a season in Gonzaga basketball history. And frankly, it's not all that close. Malachi Smith is adjusting from a much smaller level of competition to a significantly bigger level of competition while his role is a 180 from what it was when he was at Chattanooga. He did everything for the mocks, everything. Now he has to adjust to a completely different role while playing teams that are way, way better. We just need to give him time. It's been seven games. In a couple of those games, he has looked fantastic. Yes, it is obvious the caliber of opponent he has played directly correlates with his performance on the court. I don't think that that is a coincidence. I think that that there is something to that, but the belief that he's not going to be able to to get better and start to acclimate and play against that level of opponent – I, I don't buy into that. It's still November. I think he's got, he's got plenty of time. He's still adjusting to not only the level of play, like I said, but a, a brand new role too. It's just going to take some time. Next question comes from Thomas via Gmail. Thomas says, the commentators mentioned that Nolan Hickman is not Andrew Nembhard, but doesn't need to be. What kind of point guard do you think he is or will be for his future at Gonzaga? And how do you see him playing and his lasting effects on the program? I.e., will he be remembered as one of the greats or like a down year for point guards? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, I, I agree that he does not have to be Andrew Nembhard. I do think that his game 
kind of mimics Andrew Nemhard's in a sense that he kind of has some of the similar skill sets. There was some question about his outside shooting, although he's put some of that to rest. He's more of a distributor, more of a facilitator. He's not a score first point guard. He's not, you know, he's not Jalen Suggs. He's not, not even Nigel Williams Goss, who is a bit more of a score first point guard. He's more of a distributor, more of a guy who, who runs the offense, who kind of calms, it calms everybody down the straw that stirs the drink, whatever kind of analogy you want to use there. I think that's more his style. I do think he's, he's a potential like blossom in year three type guy. Like I think he's going to get better this year, but I also don't think this is his final year in a Gonzaga uniform. So his lasting effect on the program is likely to be determined more by what he does next season, as opposed to what he does this season. Although, like I said, I think that, I mean, his last two games against Purdue and Xavier, he scored 14 and 15 points, had five assists. He was awesome in those games. So clearly he's on his way to being a big time contributor. Next question comes from Austin via Gmail. Austin says, even with the loss against Purdue, Hickman showed some solid flashes of offense, hit some threes and had five assists. His progress has been a bit slow, but but do you think by March he'll be ready to handle NCAA pressure and be able to facilitate the offense? Yeah, I'm going to push back on his progress has been slow. I just, I don't, I don't believe that's true. But to be quite honest, I don't think that that's true. He is seven games into his first year as a starter at Gonzaga. Seven games. In those seven games, he has played top 20 team in Michigan State. He has played a top 10 team in Kentucky at the time. He has played a top now five team in Purdue. I mean, they've played this. Obviously, we got the Xavier game as well. He's played a ridiculous schedule of games in Texas. I was like, I knew I'm forgetting a game in Texas. Texas on the road, a true road game at Texas. That is a ridiculous stretch of basketball games. Again, harder than any guard that has ever had to take over. The only person who's close is Jalen Suggs because Gonzaga had a really challenging schedule to begin Jalen Suggs' freshman season. Nolan Hickman not being as good through seven games as Jalen Suggs does not mean that his progress has been slow. Jalen Suggs is a freak, absolute elite, top tier, if not the greatest, just in terms of skill basketball player Gonzaga has ever had, top three without a doubt. Nolan Hickman, in his last two games, again, against Purdue and Xavier, 14 and 15 points, five assists. I think he was like seven for 14 or seven for 15 from three in those two games combined against, again, top five team in the country in Purdue and a almost certain tournament team in Xavier. To me, him having two performances like that before the calendar flips to November, or excuse me, before the calendar flips to December is not an indication of a player who is progressing slowly. Regarding the final part of the question, do I think he'll be ready by March to handle the pressure? Absolutely, because he's doing it now. He's already, you know, he, he's getting the opportunities to do that in ways that many other Gonzaga guards face some of their biggest challenges for the first time in March, as opposed to facing them in November, in December. Uh, and I think that's why Mark Few did this. That's why the schedule is, is set up the way that it is. And no one has already proved he can handle that pressure and have really productive games against some of the best teams in the entire country. No reason to not believe he can continue to do that in March. Well, the Zags sure don't seem like they're going to be in the WCC forever. So what does that mean for the school's longtime conference going forward? We'll talk about that here in a second. But first, I want to tell you all about Bet Online. College basketball and the NBA are, of course, right in the thick of their seasons. The NFL and college football are wrapping up. Bet Online is your number one source for all of your betting needs and sports information. From all the latest odds, contests, and player props, you name it. BetOnline remains the best spot for all the latest sports developments, including podcasts and reviews for all of the leagues this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering information needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino games. They even have lines for coaching changes across every major sport, so even in the offseason, you can get your fix. 
Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and action. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, segment two, still any patents, still Locked On Zach. I want to thank all of you for making Locked On Zach your first listen of the day. For your second listen today, check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast. From the games that matter the most to the biggest stories in sports, Go beyond the scoreboard and behind the scenes with local experts and insights that only Locked On can provide. Locked On Sports Today, available on this app, YouTube, and wherever you get podcasts. All right, continuing our final Mailbag Monday segment of the week. Five out of five. So many great questions from you all this week. Appreciate it again, as always. This question comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, who had the better feast week performance? Number one, the Gonzaga men with wins over Kentucky and Xavier. Number two, the Gonzaga women with wins over Louisville and Tennessee. Or three, the Portland men coming within a minute of beating North Carolina, a win over Villanova and a narrow loss to Michigan State. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to go with the Lady Zags here. I, I think uh, in terms of expectation versus how they actually did, uh, it's close between the Lady Zags and, of course, the Portland men's team who really kind of shocked a lot of people with the performance that they put together. But the women picked up two wins over top 25 programs when at the time they were unranked. A win over a number six ranked team in Louisville, win over 23 Tennessee. It would be a shoe win had they managed, had they not lost the game to Marquette, the loss to Marquette. Not a terrible loss by any stretch of the imagination, especially because it led to them getting the opportunity to beat Tennessee. Uh, but I think that they had a slightly better week. The Portland men, I can't give them the the win here because they went one and two. But man, what a week. What a week for Shantae Leggins and the Portland Pilots. Uh, incredible jaw-dropping performances from them. Uh, it kind of leads into the next question that I want to answer here from at Gaslamp Victim on Twitter, who says, what's the over-under on the number of seasons Shantae Leggins will remain at Portland? Yeah, it sure seems like he's a, he's a coach on the rise right now, doesn't it? Uh, we, we've seen the WCC start to kind of become a bit more of a farm for younger coaches to show up and coach well for a couple of years and then move on to another place. And there's pros and cons with that. Certainly you'd like to see some more consistency, some more coaches stick around for a long period of time. But in the WCC, oftentimes it's kind of a balance of you got your old heads like Mark Few and, and Randy Bennett. You got coaches who are kind of just on the tail end of their careers a little bit. Steve Lavin, Lorenzo Romar, they kind of fit into that bill. And then you have the kind of young, exciting up and coming coaches who are likely not going to be around forever. Of course, Kyle Smith and Todd Golden were primary examples of that at San Francisco. Chris Gerlofson, off to a fantastic start this year. Pretty good chance that his career trajectory looks somewhat similar. I was very happy that Portland hired Shantae Leggins because there is the expectation that, hey, if he does really well, he might only be here for a, a class worth of students. So four years. That's kind of my guess. Three to four years feels fairly reasonable for Shantae if they continue to grow or I guess if they maintain. They have already grown tremendously from where they were when he took over the program. They don't have to keep exploding forward. They just need to maintain where they are now and continue to get slightly better or at least not dip performance-wise. If he can continue to recruit well to get high-level players via the transfer portal, continue to out-coach really good coaches in games and keep them competitive, then yeah, it's not going to be very long until a Power 5 program comes calling. Next question comes from at Upper95215 on Twitter who says, the future of the WCC when Gonzaga leaves. Does St. Mary's become a team that makes the NCAA tournament every year, or does it create parity in the WCC auto bid? Does it mean more or less bids for the WCC going forward? Well, less in the sense that Gonzaga is just an auto lock, regardless of whether they win the league or not. Having said that, I think 
I think it's a little bit of both. I think St. Mary's does become a team that makes the NCAA tournament every year. And I think it creates a little bit more parity in the WCC auto bid. What I mean by that is St. Mary's is basically already a team that makes the tournament every year. They are a team that they have, Randy Bennett and their staff have worked hard enough to put this team in a position with their schedule, with their just consistency, with their recruiting, where even if they don't win the WCC auto bid, they make the NCAA tournament. You have to do that if you're in the WCC with Gonzaga, because otherwise you just don't make the NCAA tournament. St. Mary's has done that. I mean, they got a, a five seed last year, if I'm not mistaken, either a four or five seed last year, and they did not win the WCC. So they're in. I'm not saying they're going to make it every single year, but like uh, they're, they're, it's going to be nice. They're, they're going to have a pretty good chance to make the WCC, especially because they can, I mean, they're playing Houston in a couple of days. That's an incredible non-conference game, the number one team in the country. That's an extraordinary non-conference game for them. So, so if they can continue to schedule well, they're going to, they're going to be a team that continues to make it, but they're more susceptible to losing the WCC championship game. They're not as invincible as Gonzaga. Not to say Gonzaga has been invincible. St. Mary's has clipped them a couple of times, but I could see plenty of realities where St. Mary's Obviously, he's going to make the NCAA tournament. They're, they're borderline ranked or right around ranked the entire year. Uh, they coast through WCC, maybe lose a game or two here and there. But then they get picked off in the championship game. Maybe uh, San Francisco picks them off. Maybe Portland, Shantae Leggins, get, they get to, the pilots get to go dancing. And St. Mary's isn't going to lose. The WCC is not going to fall so far that St. Mary's just it doesn't matter if you can go 31-0. But if you lose that championship game, you're out. Like there are some conferences that are like that where it doesn't really matter what happens in the regular season. Only one team's making it, and it's whatever team wins that final game. I don't think the WCC is going to be that. They've proven they're not that even right now with Gonzaga. Gonzaga losing obviously hurts everybody's strength of schedule a little bit. So does BYU losing, leaving. That is a, a, a problem for a lot of these teams in the WCC, but I don't see a reality. And we'll see who they add and kind of what changes get made after that. But I don't think the WCC falls to being just an auto one bid. I think St. Mary's will likely get it most of the time, but I think we'll still see some some two or maybe, maybe three bid WCC teams uh, even after Gonzaga lose. All right, final question of the segment comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, ESPN currently has the Gonzaga women projected as a five seed for March Madness. If our ladies' Ags beat Stanford next week, it seems like they could have a legit chance at a three seed or perhaps a two seed, even though the rest of the WCC women appear to be having a down year. What do you think is a three three seed possible for the Gonzaga women? Well, I'll tell you this. I don't look at March Madness predictions until the calendar year has flipped because I just don't think that it's particularly relevant or noteworthy until we're actually at least a decent chunk of the way into the season. Uh, having said that, yeah, if they beat Stanford, that's a huge victory. Wins over Louisville, wins over Tennessee, wins over Stanford. Uh, that puts them in a position to be a top five seed, not necessarily regardless of how they do the rest of the season, but assuming they don't completely tank the rest of the season, yeah, I think they'd be in the conversation for a three or four seed. I don't think they're going to beat Stanford. I think Stanford is extremely talented, and, and as much as Gonzaga plays them up, plays them really, really well every single time they play, the Stanford team is, is loaded and I think that they're probably going to secure a victory there. I think it could be a really nice loss for the women's team in the sense that it is often a nice loss for them. That is historically what has kind of happened. Um, I think they're going to do great in the WCC. You're right. The WCC has got a bit of a down year. We'll see if Portland can kind of rebound. We'll see what happens with BYU. They haven't looked very good yet this year. I think the women are more likely to fall into that five, four, five, six range for seeding. I'd be pretty surprised if they get up above into the three or two seed range, but Lisa Fourier has got an extremely talented squad. They're playing really, really good ball right now. Vani Ejim looks incredible. The Trunk Twins are obviously fantastic now that they're kind of 
veteran players. They really play well against each other. Eliza Hollingsworth has been incredible this year. So I think this team has the potential to be, uh, you know, a sweet 16 elite eight caliber team, and maybe they get up into that seed range, but I kind of see them more in the four, five, six range as of right now. There are a lot of very exciting games happening in the West Coast Conference this week, many of them against Mountain West opponents. A good opportunity to see the WCC versus the Mountain West. Here's a primer on the best games to watch this upcoming week as the calendar flips to December. All right, segment three, Stoney Patton is still locked on Zags. Let's look WCC. It is Wednesday after all. WCC Wednesday is a theme of the episode, so we're going to look at a couple big games coming up this week for folks who want to watch college basketball but don't have any Gonzaga games to watch outside of the Baylor game on Friday, of course, so we're going to look at some other games that folks could be tuning into. First up, on November 30th, Wyoming versus Santa Clara at Salt Lake Community College. Really weird neutral site for that game to be at. I thought that was interesting. Uh, this is a fun game. The Ken Palm rankings right now, Santa Clara is 97th. Wyoming is 104th. So very, very even matchup. The Broncos are 5-2 and two on the year. Wyoming is 3-3. Three and three. They've had a bit of a disappointing season. They've had some injuries, which has been a problem for them. They were kind of expected to be a top two or three team in the Mountain West. Still might be. Haven't looked like that so far this season. Big question for me is Brandon Podzimski, the one of the best transfers to be added to the WCC this entire season. He's been incredible. He's averaging 19.9 points and 10 rebounds per game. How he does against a strong defensive Wyoming team will be a really fun storyline to watch in that one. Continuing our WCC versus Mountain West challenge, LMU is playing a true road game against the Rams of Colorado State. Also, on November 30th, that is a 124 versus 83 Ken Palm matchup. So a bit of a challenge for the Lions. They are six and two on the year. They should be seven and one. They blew what I believe was an 18 point lead against UC Riverside in their second game of the year. Should be seven and one had they secured that victory. They have wins over Georgetown, which sounds impressive, but isn't actually all that impressive because Georgetown is truly, truly terrible. They have a win over Wake Forest, which sounds impressive and is pretty impressive because Wake Forest is a decent squad. Um, this is a chance for them to prove that they're the real deal. We didn't expect LMU to be the real deal. We didn't expect LMU to be really particularly close to being the real deal coming into this season. But if they win this one against Colorado State, we're talking about a team that's probably going to be in the, you know, barely outside the top 100 for Ken Palm going into December with a 7-2 and two record. That's really nice. Good work for Stan Johnson and the Lions right now this season. Next up, again, Mountain West versus WCC. So many of those games this week. Very, very fun to check those out. We got New Mexico, the 6-0 and oh. New Mexico squad against the Gales of St. Mary's, 6-1 and one for St. Mary's. New Mexico's 92nd in Ken Palm. St. Mary's is 25th. They are at home, so they should win this one. They're coming off a tough loss to Washington, a game they were expected to win. Washington managed to beat them behind the strength of Keon Brooks. The Kentucky transfer had an awesome game in that one. I think UNM, I think New Mexico's a good squad. I think this would be a nice win for Randy, but it's more of a, hey, this is the kind of game that could end up being a loss and it's not going to look good, but hopefully they can secure a victory there. And then, of course, St. Mary's a couple days later, the big one, the real big one, December 3rd, St. Mary's versus Houston is a neutral site game, but it is in Texas, so it is not really a neutral site game. This is an opportunity for the Gales to get a huge victory. I'm I only say this half kidding when I say the first team to score 35 points might be the victor in that one. Houston has a extraordinary, tenacious, long defensive unit, and they 
give you so much trouble with that. And if they're playing like that and St. Mary's playing the way that St. Mary's plays, I'm not kidding. This could be like a 43 to 39 type of game. It's good. It might be a kind of an ugly one, uh, but if St. Mary's able to pull that off, it's a program altering victory for Randy Bennett. A couple more rapid fire games that I want to talk about real quick. UNLV, the running rebels seven zero on the season. They are playing at San Diego, the Jenny Craig pavilion, Steve Lavin squad five and three on the year, really kind of up and down performances for them. They struggled over feast week. Uh, we saw earlier in the year where Eric Williams, the Oregon transfer dropped 42 points, a program record for San Diego. They just had a game quite recently. Eric Williams didn't even score. So this team has still trying to figure out their identity. They're trying to figure out who they are, who's going to be the guys who step up. You know, Lavin is likely still trying to kind of figure out what he's got in his team and, and kind of adjust to coaching again for the first time in a long time. Um, I was always a little bit skeptical of how high some people were on San Diego. They had a nice off season, of course, hiring a, a well-known coach in Steve Lavin, Eric Williams, the transfer from Oregon, Jaden Delaire transfer from Stanford, really nice additions for them. Haven't really quite seen it yet. I think it might take a little bit of time for this team to really kind of mature into who they might be. Uh, obviously a chance to, to defeat to defeat UNLV, who has yet to lose this season, would be a really, really nice marker for Steve Lavin and his non-conference schedule. Uh, after that, Nevada is at LMU. Again, Mountain West WCC, baby. That is what is happening this week. Nevada is 7-1 on the year. LMU, we already discussed. They are 6-2 and two on the year. That game is happening also on the third Saturday of the Saturday, December 3rd. We'll try that again. And then finally, this game on Sunday, December 4th, closing out the Mountain West WCC matchups for the week. Utah State 5-0, and one of very few. I think there's less than 20 undefeated teams remaining at this point in the in the conference or in the non-conference season, I should say. They are playing San Francisco, the Dons, six and one on the year. Chris Gerlifson. Picking up right where Todd Golden left off. We remember USF was one of the last undefeated teams remaining last year before they got clipped by Grand Canyon. It was an upsetting loss for that team. They also lost to Loyola Chicago. Those were pretty much two of their only losses early in the season, and they still were, were a bubble team. That's how hard it is to make it as an at-large mid-major team. Uh, but I think San Francisco looks just as good this year, even without Jamari Bouye, even without Matthias Toss, or excuse me, not Matthias Toss, uh, their big, Yuhan Masalski, uh, without him, without Jamari Bouye, they've still brought in some really highly talented players. Josh Coonan has stepped up and been a really nice player for them. Jordan Rishwain has been a nice contributor for them as well. Of course, they have Khalil Shabazz back. He was one of the best players in the WCC last year, and he is still one of the best players in the WCC, has had an awesome start to the season for Gerlison and the Dons. Plenty of great action coming up this week. So many good WCC games. So many good other games that are happening as well. Big 12 versus Big East battle is going on. Of course, the Gonzaga-Baylor game is going to be a barn burner. It's going to be a really, really fun one on Friday. We got way more content coming your way, previewing the Bears, talking about what's different on that team, what's the same on that team, what they're going to try to do, what Gonzaga needs to do to potentially stop that. All of that stuff coming up on Thursday and Friday show. So tune into those. Also, don't forget to check out the Locked On College Basketball Podcast, hosted by yours truly, as well as Isaac Shade, the host of the Locked On Tar Heels Podcast. We're talking college basketball, all things college hoops, every single day of the week. Check it out on YouTube or wherever you get podcasts. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't done so yet already. Finally, I want to thank all of you for making Locked On Zags your first listen of the day. For your next listen, check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast, the biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big game recaps, and the take of the day. 
available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get podcasts. All right. Thank you all for listening and go Zags.